0: We're going to continue with the book of Exodus tonight. We're going to pick up in chapter 28. So if you want to grab a Bible nearby you and open it up, Genesis, then Exodus, chapter 28. in the middle of God laying out his plan for the tabernacle, and there's this repeated refrain through chapters 25, 26, all the way back to 24, um, that Moses is to build these things according to the pattern. And so that pattern continues tonight, um, but it transitions from talking about the place of worship to the priesthood, the servants of worship, and so there's um, there's not just um, not just the tabernacle, not just a tent, but also a priesthood that's supposed to uh, work it, and those also have to be according to the pattern. We'll see tonight. Not only does he lay out um, the clothing. For the priests and for the high priests. But he's also going to select sovereignly a priesthood. He's going to uh, walk them through a process of preparation. They have to do certain things before they can be priests. And then he's going to walk them through their their daily routine. Uh, So let's just pick up right clear in chapter 28 verse 1. He says, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother... And his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithmar. And so the first thing uh, that we need to keep in mind is that at this point in the story, we are aware of priests. First off, back in the beginning of Exodus, when God was first declaring his covenant with Israel, he said, I'm going to make you my treasured possession, a holy nation, and a kingdom of priests. And so there's a sense where each and every person in Israel was like a priest, that that was by design, but they still had a priesthood. Now, it's in that same chapter that the priests are first referred to, and they're referred to as if they already exist. They're referred to as if there's somebody already serving as a priest, Um, but here he clarifies and says, these and these only will be your priesthood. Some commentators believe that the priests serving prior to this point were the firstborn of Israel, um, the firstborn son of every family, you may remember back during the Passover, God said, all of the firstborn belong to me. And so maybe they were serving as the priesthood. Either way, now he, he delineates it down to just Aaron and his sons. In other words, the tribe of Levi. You may remember that Israel is made up of 12 tribes uh, from the 12 sons of Jacob uh, but when we hear Aaron and Aaron's sons are going to be the priesthood, if you haven't heard this before, if you just start in Genesis and read this for, uh, read this through, that's a little bit shocking. Now, if you just pick up in Exodus chapter 1 and read, that kind of makes sense. Moses is also from the tribe of Levi. Levi, And so there's already this leadership reality between Moses and Aaron. They're kind of the main stage players in this whole thing. But when you go back to the book of Genesis, there's an incident. um, Of Israel or Jacob's 12 sons, there's an occasion that highlights both Levi and then Levi's brother Simeon. Um, So Levi and Simeon have a sister named Dinah. Jacob's family is a mixed family, all with one father, but they're all half-brothers and sisters between four women. It's kind of a mess, but Levi, Simeon, and Dinah all come from the same mother. They're really family, by blood. Mother and father are the same. And Dinah is sexually abused. In fact, she's raped. And then her rapist comes with the support of her father to ask for a hand in marriage, Jacob is concerned about the danger of the circumstances and so he's trying to navigate this uh, in a politically correct manner but Dinah's brothers are incensed and they come up with a plan and the plan is agree to marry, uh, agree to marry off our sister Yes, you can marry her, but first you need to be circumcised, and not just you, but everybody in the town needs to be circumcised, and then we can all interchange in our families, both marrying and giving in marrying, uh, giving in marriage. And so the town agrees to this, and while they're still sore from the circumcision, Levi and Simeon both ransack the town, kill all the men, uh, pillage, plunder, and take all the women captive. Um, it's a total mess. Um, what happens later is in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is looking forward at the future of his son's descendants in Israel. And he speaks of Levi and Simeon and he recalls that event. And he says that you are violent men, that you're not to be trusted. And because of this, both of your descendants will be scattered throughout the people of Israel. They will have no inheritance. Now, what happens to Simeon's family is that they never take any land of their own and they just kind of get absorbed into Judah. And so in the tribe of Judah, in the land that Judah takes, there are Simeonites. But the Simeonites don't have their own piece of the promised land. The Levites, however, they don't inherit any of the land because they become the priesthood. And as we'll learn later uh, in the book of Leviticus, their inheritance is not the land at all, but the Lord himself. And so they're not given a place in the land and they set up Um, priestly colonies across the whole nation of Israel so that the whole nation has access to the class of the priests. Now, is that surprising? Absolutely, right? Here is this brother of blood, this violent man, and his other brother gets no inheritance and he gets to be the priestly authority. But I think what this demonstrates is the tremendous sovereign grace of God, He promises that they're both going to be scattered, and that's going to happen, but he graciously does it in a completely different way, and we're not told why. You could speculate if you want and say, well, there still is Moses and Aaron to deal with, and they're pretty righteous people. You just hold on a minute. Aaron's going to disappoint us next week, and Moses won't be further far behind. You know, neither of them are perfect leaders, but God selects one family, the Levites, and he says, these will be my priests, Aaron and his sons in perpetuity, okay? Now, it takes the time to remind us that Aaron has a handful of sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithmar. They will all be uh, primary characters at a later date, so it just introduces them here. But then it tells them what they're to do. Verse two, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty, okay? So the first thing we see here is that they're to have priestly garments that there's a uniform that comes with a job and we're told specifically here that it is to be both honoring and beautiful for glory and for beauty and so when we ask what is the purpose of the clothing we're about to look at a primary one that's stated right for us here in the text is that it's supposed to be beautiful okay it continues on and it explains in verse three you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate for him consecrate him for my priesthood. And so what he says here is that I'm going to give the skills needed to make these clothes but Aaron and his sons need them why to consecrate them. Okay? We have this saying in modern English that the clothes make the man. And usually what that means is that if you dress well, you'll achieve well, right? That it'll open doors. When it mentions here that his clothing is consecrating, what it's recognizing is the fact that there's a sense where the priests themselves, as human beings, as people, aren't going to live up to the reality of what a priest needs to be. And so when they don these clothes, it's more than what it's supposed to be. It's, it's more than what they could be on their own. In this sense, the clothing makes the man. In other words, uh, this clothing sets them apart for the role. It, it doesn't just like a, a stewardess on an airplane identify them as, oh, look, there's a priest. Or like a cleric's collar today where you go, okay, I see him in public, he must be a priest. It's more than that. It's what's going to go into this clothing is idealistic it points to what's needed in a priest and the truth is there's no one in Israel or in the world at large that lives up to those needs and so the clothing stands in the gap and fills in that distance it consecrates them so now it starts to describe what the garments are verse 4 these are the garments that they shall make a breastpiece an ephod a robe a coat of checkerwork a turban and a sash Okay, it lays out all the pieces here. I know many of them are Eastern and foreign to us, but it's going to tell us more about them as we move forward. He continues here, they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Okay, So the ephod, the turban, the robe, the sash, all of it's to be made out of these yarns. And if you were with us last week, the colors here sound familiar right? They're the same things used in the tabernacle. And that's somewhat striking. It's not just that they are now, you know, matching the interior design of the tabernacle, although I should mention that that's the part they match, the holy place. That's where we find these colors, not out in the court, but in the holy place um, we find these colors. But what we see is there's some sort of correlation between the priests and the place that they serve, between the tabernacle and the priesthood. They're connected. There's an overlap here. Now, I don't mean to spoil the plot already, but part of the reason that is the case is because what God is conveying according to the pattern, what he's laying out in the tabernacle and the priesthood can't be understood with one and the other, or or the other, I should say, but needs them both hand in hand. In other words, by tying these two together, it helps us to recognize that this heavenly reality that God is trying to describe needs both aspects. In fact, a third one is going to be added in, and that's the sacrifices themselves. To understand what God is trying to convey through the worship of Israel, you need to not look just merely at the priests or merely at the sacrifice or even at this holy place known as the tabernacle, but all of them combined um, It's like a triptych. Do you know what a triptych is? A triptych is a piece of art that has three individual pieces, but they all collectively go together. And so you could look at one, and it would be a piece of art, but when you put all three together, you get the full picture of what the artist is trying to convey. To get the full picture of Israel's worship, you need the priesthood and the place of worship and the sacrifices. And so they're dressed in the same materials that make up the tabernacle, um, we'll see more of that as we go along. Verse 6, And they shall make the ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and of fine twined linen skillfully worked. Okay, and so first we hear about the ephod. Now, an ephod is not a modern piece of clothing. And so um, what you should probably think of is a complicated vest. Okay. It's bigger than a vest. It's more involved than a vest, but you wear it over the robe, okay? And it doesn't have long sleeves. It has openings for the arms, and it basically covers your chest, okay? So this is the ephod. It tells us a bit more in verse 7. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together, okay? And so, imagine like a piece of ancient armor. It has a front and a back, and the two are connected with individual shoulder pieces. Okay, it continues on here, and it says, uh, verse nine: You shall take two onyx stones; those are precious gems, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one, and six of the remaining on uh, s- or, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. Okay, and so six names on one stone, the other six, and then all together in order. The names of all the sons of Israel. And what are they to do with them? Verse uh, 11 As a jeweler engraves signets, so also shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders. For remembrance. Okay, so do you get the idea here? There's this beautiful garment that's in two pieces, a front and a back, and then there's two shoulder pieces, and there's a gold setting, an onyx stone, and then written on the stones are the 12 names of the tribes of Israel. And it tells us why here. So that when the priest goes about his work, he is bearing the names of the children of Israel. Now, we'll come back to the significance of that in a second because that's not the only connection between the high priest and the people of Israel. So we'll wait for just a second. Um, Verse 13, you shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. Okay, and so there's a piece of gold chain that's connecting these two pieces uh, holding the onyx stones to the pieces of the ephod. then we have another piece of clothing in verse 15 known as the breast piece. You shall make a breast piece of judgment. Now the word there for judgment is the same one that was used, um, let's see if I can remember where. What's the Hebrew word mishpat? So if you find the word mishpat, I believe it's in the book of Genesis um, and it talks about the Lord decide between you and me. I think this is Jacob and Laban. I think that's what we're talking about. Um, But either way, the idea of judgment here is not judgment as in, Uh, consequence its judgment is in discernment its judgment and is as in carrying a case to decide yes or no right or wrong up or down and so this piece then this breast piece uh, is to be a breast piece of judgment and it continues it says in verse 15 in skilled work in the style of the ephod you shall make it of gold blue purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen you shall make it Okay. So in fabric, it looks just like the ephod that we studied. And then verse 17, you shall set it in it four rows of stones, a row of sardis, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, beryl, onyx, and jasper. Now that's a whole lot of different types of precious stones to the degree that we're not exactly sure the modern uh, correlating stones of our day and age, okay? Um, And so most translators just pick 12. There's a few of these that we're more confident in because we know what color they are from other passages of scripture. There's a couple that are just head scratchers for us. We're not told the significance of each and every individual stone, but I think you can already guess the significance of the 12 collectively, right? Once again, it's pointing to the 12 sons of Israel. Um, So before we move forward and talk about that, let's just picture what this is. And so this is a pouch going over the top of the ephod, in front of the chest and it has four rows of three stones a total of twelve all of them beautiful jewels okay now it continues and it explains what's going on here in verse 21 there should be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel they shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes so on top of the twelve names on the ephod each one of these stones will have a different tribe of Israel engraved on it as well So there's the names on the shoulder, and now there's the names in front of his heart. In fact, that's what it says in verse 23, verse 22. You shall make for the breast piece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and you shall make for the breast piece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breast piece, and you shall put the two cords of gold and the two rings at the edges of the breast piece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. So hanging down from these shoulder stones are gold chains, and then from it is just this piece of fabric that we'll see has a pocket in it and 12 beautiful stones. Verse uh, 27 You shall make two rings of gold, attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod, and it seems above, skillfully wo- woven to the band of the ephod. In other words, it's attached at the bottom too. So it's solid. It's not hanging and flapping like a necklace would be. It's solid connected at top and bottom. And now we get the reason, verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Okay, and so first we saw that he bears his names on the shoulder as he go about, goes about his business and now he bears them in front of his heart. And notice here that we're seeing now that the priest is functioning in place of Israel. That's what it means by in remembrance, okay? And so the people of Israel aren't allowed into the holy place. As we're going to see, um, being consecrated and qualified to enter into the holy place is serious business. But that doesn't mean the priest is just an upper-class citizen who gets to enjoy God. He goes before God's presence on the people's behalf. He carries, as we see, the people with him both on his shoulders and in front of his heart. Um, and so, uh, verse 30, now we find out what this chest piece, this breastplate is for. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Now, notice that this text speaks like the Urim and the Thummim are already things we understand. We do not, okay? They're referred to regularly across the course of the Pentateuch. They also show up in books later like Nehemiah and 2 Kings. Um, We do not know what they are, but we do know why they uh, or what function they served, okay? As it says here, this was a breastpiece of judgment or discernment. And what this was used for was to discern or decision-make before the Lord, okay? It was a way of God communicating his will on particular issues, yes or no, right or wrong, go or stay, those types of things. And so the priest would come into the holy place and he'd somehow use these two things to understand the will of the Lord, not for his own life, but for the people of Israel as a whole. Now, when we ask the question, why doesn't it tell us what they are? Uh, first off, does it help if we translate the words? No, the words just mean light. Uh, and I always forget the second one. Hold on, it's probably written here for me. Let me follow my notes. Of course it's not. Um, well, we'll encounter them before uh, again. Uh, but the other one... means something close to clarity okay so why doesn't it tell us how they work okay reason number one and i would say this one's pretty self-evident because israel already knows okay it doesn't need to be explained because they're already acquainted with this practice we've found consistently even though a good portion of this section god is designing things according to the pattern he's not beyond using things they're already familiar with all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, God takes a normal covenant-cutting ritual and fills it with his own meaning. Okay. Uh, in the New Testament, it does the same thing. It takes both Passover and fills it with the meaning that we call communion, and then it takes baptism, which was a practice that the Jews did. It's not an Old Testament biblical practice, but the Jews started doing it in the intertestamental period, the time between the Old and New Testament, and God just uses it and says, baptism is something Christians are going to do. Okay. Either way, it seems like everybody understands what the Urim and Thummim are in the original audience, but there's, I think, probably a very good second reason why we aren't told exactly what these are and how they work. It's because we are fully capable of going, I bet that would work for me, and just making some sort of system so we too can hear the word of God. Now, that doesn't mean, the fact that we don't know anything about it doesn't mean that scholars don't have guesses. And some of those guesses are, are pretty interesting. Some believe that these are just two bright stones and that they would literally somehow miraculously convey God's answers like through flashing or through lights or something like that. Others think maybe it's just a black stone and a white stone, and one means yes and one means no, and he just reaches into his pocket and he pulls one out, and then to make sure it's actually God speaking, he does it a couple of times. We do know that there was another similar practice we find in the Bible known as the casting of lots, Um, which is the ancient equivalent of the drawing of straws, or or you could think of it like rolling dice. But it's a similar system where you just have um, two possible outcomes, but you're asking God to use this incredibly normal thing that's generally just a system of statistics for God to make himself known. We see, for example, the apostles themselves in Acts chapter 1 casting lots to determine who is going to be the next apostle to replace Judas, to maintain the number 12, okay? Um, But like I said, it's, it's relatively clear to me that these things are not explained because we always want to oversimplify the leading of God. In fact, we always want to oversimplify the Old Testament and assume that because we are in one sense the children of Abraham, because through Jesus we've been grafted into Israel, that things work exactly the same way we have to remember that, uh, that we are not the nation of Israel. We've talked about this in the laws of Israel. Not every biblical law in the Old Testament is of direct conveying significance for you today. Okay? Some of them are national laws about when you go to war in the army of Israel, about how you pay your taxes in the nation of Israel. Right. In the same way, Many of the things that God is trying to describe and to teach according to the pattern are just shadows pointing forward to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so a little bit later on, we'll read from the book of Hebrews and we'll discover that the author of Hebrews is trying to argue, why would you go back to the tent and the bloody sacrifices when all of that pointed to Jesus and it's all been taken care of in him? Why would you settle for the picture, you know, the, the portrait when, when, you know, Jesus has walked into the building and said, here I am. But either way, this is some sort of way for Israel to hear from the Lord. And so he carries this, them with him in all times. And while he's in the holy place, he can speak to God and discern his will. Um, so we have the ephod, we have the breastplate, and now we have a robe, verse 31. You shall make the robe of the ephod all blue and it shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it. With a woven binding around it, opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. When we read opening like the opening in a garment, think poncho. That's what's helpful to me, right? There's a hole that's woven around so that it doesn't tear for you to put your head through, and then it's just a single piece of fabric, okay? Um on its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. So blue robe and then along the bottom, there's attractive uh, uh, pomegranates as well as golden bells that are hanging from it, okay? And so everywhere the priest goes, you know it. You can hear him, Okay. Uh, It says in verse 35, it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die, okay? Now, that is both a serious and a little bit of a confounding statement, okay? It's serious because he basically says these bells are keeping the high priest alive. It's confounding because they're just bells, and it doesn't tell us why or how or what the point is here. Um, what it does say, though, is that, uh, that uh, he's going to go into the holy place and he's going to come out and there's going to be a constant sound of bells and that will keep him alive. Okay? At, at its smallest point, this is a reminder of the reality of the difficulty of a sinful people dwelling with God. Right? That's God's great desire in the tabernacle is to dwell with his people. But his people are sinners. His people have issues. Uh, and so all of these things sound threatening, but they're really gracious. Okay? These are ways that God has made so that this can be even possible. Okay, One of the things we learn from Israel's Old Testament worship is the need, how big the distance is between us and God. It, it uh, helps us not to shrink that distance because it makes us more comfortable helps us not to think of god uh, as just like us totally approachable just a buddy or a friend it recognizes ultimately god's holiness how unique and perfectly righteous he is Um, in the old testament refers to god as a consuming fire And so these bells, we may not understand, but it reinforces and reminds us of the principle here that that the business of the tabernacle is serious and dangerous because it involves the living God. Verse 36, you shall make a plate of pure gold and a grave on it like an engraving of signets, holy to the Lord. Now, this word here for plate is generally translated flower. And so we could think of this like a flat rectangular plate that's going to sit across the forehead, but more likely it's like a medallion that maybe has petals in its shape. And it says on it, holy to the Lord. It's made out of gold. Verse 37, you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. Okay, and so at all times as he's ministering, he has this hat, this turban, and then on front of it is this gold blossoming plate that says, holy to the Lord. Now, what is the purpose of that? One of the things it does is it, it does what the priest can't do on his own, okay? The priest by nature is not holy. But as we saw, his clothing is to consecrate him, and so he has this label that serves the purpose, okay? But I was thinking about this. Another thing it does is anytime this priest is interacting with anyone else, there's this constant written on his forehead reminder, okay? One of the things that I think is challenging about the priestly role in the way that it's portrayed in the book of Exodus and Leviticus is that you're always the high priest. There's no like, okay, you know, I'm home, I can relax, I can crack open a beer, be myself, swear a little bit, you no, the whole idea of him wearing these clothes is that, that this role, everything he does, there's no lunch break, you know, this is while he's wearing the garments, he is the high priest. Okay? Now, once again, when we look at the book of Hebrews tonight, you'll see that that's significant. Because we need a priest in continuum. That's why in the New Testament it says that Jesus stands in the heavenly place and ever lives to make intercession. He's a great high priest who's always on the job, who's always fulfilling the role. Um, and so here he has this turban and this plate, this constant reminder that he's set apart for his job. And then notice what it says. It gives more information in verse 38. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and it shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. And so we see somehow that this plate has to do with the guilt in relationship to the sacrifices, okay? It's hard to tell if what it's saying is as he's exposed to non-holy people, as he's interacting with Israelites, as he's handling their sacrifices and these things, that this will keep him in that place of holiness or if it somehow carries the guilt of those sacrifices. When it says here that he will... um, bear the guilt, the only place we find that particular phrase used elsewhere is of a particular sacrifice called the scapegoat. Okay, the scapegoat would bear the guilt of Israel. And what they would do with the scapegoat is they would release it into Israel, or sorry, into the wilderness. They would just let it run, and it was supposed to convey that they had been now separated from their sins. There's a very interesting modern interpreter who wonders if this idea goes all the way to the great day of the day of atonement. And so there's a sense where the priest carries the sins of Israel collectively, all compounding on his shoulders, until he brings them before the mercy seat once a year and deals with all of them. Okay? But either way you look at it, the recognition here is that the high priest is bearing other people's sins. That's the emphasis here. And this plate, holy to the Lord, is a reminder of that. If I, if I may, a striking one, right? Because unlike the scapegoat, where the goat is made unclean and sent out into the wilderness, this is someone who's holy, right? It's incongruent that he would be the sin bearer. Um, and yet that's the purpose of the priest. Um, verse 39, you shall weave the coat in checkerwork of fine linen, And you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. So these ones aren't explained as much, but on top of the ephod and the tunic, there's also um, a coat, and then there's the turban, which we've already had reference to, now we know what it's made of, and then finally a sash, and so around uh, around his waist is a decorative sash. Verse 40, for Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and for beauty. So now it says, like the high priest's garments, also you'll make some for the priests. But here, um, we're not told what they look like. The assumption is here that they're much more simple, right? And so it's only the high priest who has the breastplate with the Urim and the Thummim. It's only the high priest who has the shoulder pads bearing the names of Israel and the plate on his turban holy to the Lord. The Only the high priest who has the bells and the pomegranates. Okay, But there's a correlation between the rest of the priesthood and the high priest, but much more simplified. Okay? Still to be attractive, glorious, beautiful. Um, and then it says, continuing on here, You shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Okay, those phrases for anoint, ordain, and consecrate are uh, not mutually exclusive. There's some semantic overlap in those terms. But the idea is that you are to, um, we'll see anointing actually involves a physical ritual. Ordaining involves appointing them and commissioning them. And then consecrate involves the fact that they need to um, be up to the job, that they have to be ritually set apart for it. And so, so I, I want you to notice here that God calls the priests, but Israel ordains them. Okay? Now, you may think that I'm just going to run that forward to what we do with pastors today. That's irrelevant. The point I want you to make is that Israel is involved in the significance of the priesthood, okay? That they are to convey this ordination, to be a part of this, to recognize not just this is a priest of God, but this is my priest, right? The priests operate in two directions. They uh, take the people before the Lord. They stand in their place. And they have a job to take the Lord before the people. In fact, it was the priests who did most of the Bible teaching, and explaining of God's word and God's law to the people during Old Testament times. Um, continuing here, we see a few more garments that weren't mentioned. Verse 42, you shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs. Um, so the idea here is under all of this, they have effectively underwear. And it says specifically it's to cover their nakedness. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that God said that you needed to design altars in a way where there were no steps, so that when you were climbing up them, it wouldn't put your nakedness on display. The idea here is that in the tabernacle, there's no possibility of that. There's no steps either in the tabernacle, but on top of that, they're constantly and regularly clothed. Now, this may sound overtly prudish or Victorian. Most commentators believe that that's not a good explanation of what's going on. We need to remember that sex in the Bible is not some sort of invasion into creation that God doesn't like, but something that God created. Most likely here, though, there is a distinction being maintained between Israel's worship, which does have a purity to it, and the worship of basically everyone else around them where sexual practice was part of the priesthood. Okay? And so this is an added distance, not prudish in the sense of avoiding seeing someone's genitals, but keeping that idea, that concept completely distinct, going out of their way to say, look, this is different. God is different than Baal. God is different than the fertility cult. And you might say, why is that necessary? Just keep reading the Bible. This is a constant struggle for the people of Israel. Just think how popular a church would be if sex was part of their worship. Okay, that's how the ancient world was. Um, Verse 43, they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Now, most likely that last line is not, thou shalt wear underwear and so will your generations, but a summary statement for everything we've just read. The clothing for the high priest, every generation in perpetuity, the priests, they're all supposed to go about this. And so it reminds us here that this is where it begins, but not where it ends. Chapter 29, verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve as priests. Now pause. I already told you there's a sense where their clothing is doing something they cannot do. What we're about to read is a direct demonstration of that. Okay. Ideally, A priest is someone who doesn't have to be dealing with their own sins and uncleanliness and guilt, okay? But for for the Levites to even be priests, there's a whole process, okay? There's a whole thing that they have to go through that's preparatory because they're just like us, because they're just some of the sons of Israel, because they're sinners like the rest of us. And so even in this consecration and the sacrifices and the anointing that comes with us, It's showing uh, a capitulation, right? God wants to dwell with Israel. He comes up with a plan. But this plan, not only in the way it works, reflects what God's going to do, but also in its deficiencies. Okay, now I'm going to nail that idea down when we read through the book of Hebrews, but let's just walk through this chapter together. Okay, so what do they do to consecrate them? First, take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You'll put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. And you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Okay, first question, where are they? Are they in the tabernacle? <clears throat> no, they're before they go into the gate. Second question, what do they do first? It says they wash with water. As we continue to read through the book of Leviticus in the months to come, you will see that there's basically three positions that you can be in as an Israelite. Unclean, clean, and holy. Okay? When it talks about them washing with water here, it's dealing with the general uncleanness. Okay? And so before they can be holy, they have to move status-wise to clean. So this isn't just hygienic. It's symbolic. It's representative of an issue. Um, And when we get into Leviticus, we'll unpack those ideas. But I just want you to see that there's steps. And the steps go in order. They can't be interchanged. They can't be reversed. And so first, they're cleansed. They're washed. Uh, Second, verse 5, then you shall take the garments and put them on Aaron the coat and the robe and the ephod, and the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on his turban. You should take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So the second thing we see here is that he gets dressed, okay? Clean isn't enough to minister before the Lord, right? He has to put on the garments because it's the garments that represent what a priest must be, and so he does that, and then it adds here that he will be anointed with anointing oil. When we read the Old Testament, we see this anointing oil used for three different positions, and all of them are called by God for a particular reason. Specifically, that's priests and kings and sometimes prophets. Um, but for the, most part, for the most part, it's a recognition that I have, as it says of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah, I have anointed you. In fact, the word for Messiah just means anointed one. Okay, it means I've chosen you, I've set you apart. It's a selection process and it's recognizing that the priests weren't elected by the people but chosen by God. Okay, And so they are anointed with oil and then verse eight, you shall bring his sons and put his coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with the sashes and bind caps on them and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Then you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Okay, And so you recognize he's anointed He's clothed, and now you, uh, you give him the authority. You recognize the authority. He's a priest of God. He's now my priest. Verse 10, you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron, his son, shall lay his hands on the head of the bull, and they shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, recognize that. Where is the bull normally killed? At The altar. But you can't take these sinful priests even anointed and garmented in and have a sacrifice, they have to be blood cleaned. They have to be atoned. They have to deal with this here out in the open before they carry who they are into the tabernacle, right? What this kind of reminds me of, uh, have you ever uh, been mopping and you've mopped yourself into a corner? The idea is the same here. Every piece we're going to see is laid out so that no contamination comes with it once again we're not talking about germs but I think the word contamination is helpful we're recognizing the holiness of what the tabernacle is and that's something that can't be messed around with and so there's phases they're cleaned they're clothed they're anointed and now we have to deal with their sin okay and so before they can deal with the sins of the people they have to deal with the sins of their own and so they sacrifice a bull It says in verse um, 12, they shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. So now they walk in and as they come up to the altar of sacrifice, they take the blood for their own sins from this bull and they put it on the altar. Verse 13, you'll take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Now we'll hear more about the sin offering in Leviticus, but just notice the first of these three sacrifices they offer, that's what it is. It's a sin offering. It's to deal with their sin. And so they would have laid their hand on the bull. They would have confessed that they were sinners. Then they would have killed the animal in their place. And they bring the blood with them into the altar. Why? Because there's more sacrifices to make. And now the altar, their sin's not in the way. Second, verse 13. Then you shall take one of the rams... And Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. You shall cut the ram in pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with the pieces and the head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Okay, so the first one was a sin offering. This one's known as a burnt offering. One of the major differences is unlike the sin offering that's removed from the tabernacle, outside of the camp of Israel and burned out there here the entire animal every piece of it is consumed on the altar okay this is a picture a symbol of total consecration okay so now that they have been atoned by the blood they offer all they are to god and basically in place because we can't lay ourselves on the altar they lay an innocent altar or an innocent animal on the altar instead Interestingly enough, in the New Testament, it picks up on this image in Romans chapter 12. And it says that Jesus' sacrifice was so sufficient that we now can offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, right? We no longer have to do this consecration thing in symbol with an animal. We can actually wholly and completely offer ourselves to the Lord because of what Jesus has done. So sin offering and then Uh, then burnt offering, and then verse 19, you shall take the other ram, and Aaron his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood, put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, on the tips of the right ear of his sons, on the thumbs of their right hand, and on the great toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Now pause. We're going to see in a second that this offering is a wave offering, meaning they're going to take pieces of this ram and present it to the Lord, and then they're going to eat it. Okay, the... uh, this is part of the possible types of peace or fellowship offerings, okay? But what's unique here is for the priests, before they can do that, part of the blood is taken and put on their right earlobe, on their right thumb, and on the big toe of their right foot, okay? The offering that we're talking about, the peace offering or a fellowship offering, recognizes that now, now that they've had these other two sacrifices, they get to live with God, Okay? It's like having a meal with God. That's why it's called a fellowship offering. They're in relationship. But added to it is this blood reminder on their ear, on their thumb, on their foot. Now, at its basic, there's clearly just a sense where even their ongoing relationship is maintained by blood from head to toe. It may be that there's a greater significance in this. You know, It's easy for us to think about this and go, okay, well, what matters about those particular parts of the body? You know, your feet are where you go. Your hands are primarily your organs of action. And your ear has to do with listening, right? And so it may convey those things. But at the very least, we have the top of them, the middle where your hands hang, and the bottom. From head to toe, there's this reminder that even the fellowship they now enjoy, which has some permanence to it, whenever they're serving in the role of priest, that duration is covered by these sacrifices out the the gate, okay? But it's only by blood. Um, okay and so it continues verse 21 you shall take part of the blood that's on the altar and the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and so a little bit of blood is taken it's mixed with the same oil they were anointed in and then they're sprinkled with it and so I just want you to recognize right now that you're going to go home at night you're going to look in the mirror you're going to see blood on your face okay your clothes you guys know blood doesn't wash out these beautiful garments they just designed now they're bloodied Now, that's going to be a part of what I would imagine would happen with all the sacrifices that are to come. But these particular flecks of blood are a constant reminder of the beginning, of where it starts, right? That they only got to this place through sacrifice. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. It's by the blood of an innocent animal. Uh, And then we see verse 22, you shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver, the two kidneys with the fat that's on them and the right thigh for it's a ram of ordination. And one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil, one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. Put all these in the palms of Aaron's and the palms of his son and wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It's a food offering to the Lord. So they take a small portion of the sacrifice, they present it to God as a wave offering, and then they put it on top of the still-burning burnt offering what do they do with the rest? Verse 26, you'll take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering of the Lord and it shall be your portion and you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that's waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is con- contributed from the ram of the ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons and it shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due for, <coughs> from the people of Israel for it is a contribution it shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. And so this is one of the sacrifices that the priesthood actually eats of, they actually partake of. When they're on the job and working in the priesthood, the meals are included through the sacrifices. But I want you to remember that that's not just a priest's got to eat, right? It's also this idea that they are now in a state of fellowship, of relationship with the Lord. Verse 29 The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him in priest, who will come into the tent of meeting to minister to the holy place, shall wear them seven days. And I just want to pause and point out two things. First off, let's do with the easy one. Wear them for seven days. This consecration that we're talking about is a seven-day thing. This is another thing that points to the correlation between the tabernacle and the creation story back in the book of Genesis. We'll have another window into that later, so I just wanted to flag that one. But the second thing I want to mention here is that who is the next priest in the family? Just your son, right? And so you're born as a Levite. Your job when you grow up is a priest. It's not something you can opt out of, just like it's not something anyone else can opt into. The point is that, once again, this is not uh, chosen, it's not deserved or earned. It's appointed. Okay? It just comes with the territory. Verse 31, you shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place and Aaron, his son, shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that's in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat any of them because they are holy. Okay, So they've gone through the process, which means they have the fellowship. Everybody else does not. When we get to the book of Leviticus, we'll discover that there is a fellowship offering for the people of Israel where they can invite their friends and family and offer just because they want to celebrate God's goodness and sit down and feast with him and friends and family. But this one, this ordination, they're the only ones who have gone through the process we're talking about. When we walk through Leviticus, we'll see how these things play out for other people. Uh, he continues here, verse 34, if any of the flesh of or the ordination or the bread remain until morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Okay? And so there's no leftovers when these things are serving a particular purpose. They're designed for one thing and for only one thing. They're not to be treated like any other food. Okay? Um, verse 35, thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all I have commanded you, through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement, and you shall also purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint and consecrate it. So they go through this practice of the sin offering every day for the first seven days of their service, okay? A constant reminder of the reality that even though they're priests, even though he's the high priest, he's still a sinner in need of atonement. Um, Verse 37, seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whoever touches the altar shall become holy. Now, that's probably a bad reading. The tense here is a little bit weird. It could read whoever touches the altar will become holy, but we know better, okay? We know that anyone who touches the altar who's not holy could lose their lives. And so what this is actually saying is whoever touches the altar must be holy, in the same way that whoever eats the food must be holy. It's drawing a boundary around the altar. They're the only ones who can touch it because they're only ones who have been consecrated. Verse 38, now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Now we get to their daily practice as priests. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth of a sea of fine flour mingled with flour or a hin of beaten oil and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. Okay, and so they have a daily routine of morning and evening offerings. Verse 41, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and offer with a grain offering and its drink offering in the morning as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. Okay, and so there's a daily sacrificial regimen. Aside from the holy days, aside from the offerings that Israel brings, as a nation, every day, morning and evening, there's an offering. Verse 43, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Now, I love that sentence because we've just gone through all of this stuff and God still says the thing that makes the tabernacle holy is me and not you, right? It's not your blood, it's not your work, it's not you getting every aspect of this right or wearing the right clothes. What really makes the tabernacle the house of God is the fact that God is there, Okay. And so even in the midst of the fact that God designed something for them to do and they have to go through the motions, the heavy lifting of their relationship is still on God's shoulders. God doesn't have to dwell in a tabernacle. He's not homeless until Israel does this, right? As Solomon makes clear when he consecrates the temple, God does not dwell in houses made by men. He only condescends to use this because he wants to be with his people. And so he gives them a meeting place. Okay. Verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I'll be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So once again, we get this summary of the book of Exodus. I brought them out of Egypt. Why? So that I would be their God, so that they would be my people, so that we would dwell together. Okay? And so the tabernacle, once again, is painted as the pinnacle of where the book is headed. Chapter 30. Now, we've already had a lot of the furniture in the, in the tabernacle, but there's still a few pieces that haven't been mentioned. Why do they come up now? Most likely, it's because they don't have to do with the direct needs of the tabernacle, but the needs of the priest, okay? So we're going to see one is this altar of incense, and we're going to find out the incense is needed so that the priest doesn't die, okay? We're going to find that the bronze labor exists because the priests need to be constantly cleansed with water. They have to wash their hands as they work, Okay. And so these are organizationally put at a different point because we needed priests before we could understand their significance. Unlike the ark and the lampstand and the altar, all which have to do with who God is, these ones have to do with the fact that the priests aren't God, okay? Chapter 30, verse one, you shall make an altar on which you will burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top around its sides and its horns, and you shall make a molding of gold rings around it. Okay? So it matches the furniture we've already seen, wood covered in gold with rings and poles so that it can be carried. Um, but this one is for the burning of incense. Verse 5, you'll make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil that's above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that's above the testimony, where I will meet with you. Okay, and so this sits in the holy place right in front of the veil that divides it from the most holy place. The only piece of furniture in the most holy place is the ark, but right in front of the veil, the doorway, if you will, is this altar of incense where they are to burn uh, incense. Verse 7, and Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning when he dresses the lamps he shall burn it. And Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight. He shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Okay, so as far as I remember, we now know of three daily duties of the priests. They have the morning and evening sacrifices. They're to keep the lamp burning. And they're to offer incense any time they trim the wicks on the lamps, okay? Verse 9, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Okay, so it's only for incense according to the recipe, which we'll get later. Verse 10, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once a year throughout your generations. It's most holy to the Lord. Now, the most common symbol uh, relationship for incense in the Bible is prayer. And so, even when we get to the temple that's envisioned in the book of Revelation, there's an occasion where an angel comes and he mingles incense with the prayers of the saints, okay? And so, when it mentions here, uh, there's this thing in the holy place and part of it is this constant fragrant incense. The idea is similar to what Paul tells us when he says that we should be praying continually, Okay, that this there's this communion going on, but I want you to recognize here that though that, that incense altar also needs to be cleansed by blood, right? Did you see that? That it has to be atoned for. See the, the reason I say this is because when we pray today, we don't come on our own behalf or on our uh, on our own credentials is a good way to put it. We come because we can boldly enter the throne room of grace because of what Jesus has done. And so it says this in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God and access into the grace in which we stand. Prayer. We can now ask. We can cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. We can come, but we don't come just as people. We come as people cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. We come in the name of Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, we have a census tax and we're not really told why but let's read it verse 11 the lord said to moses when you take the census of the people of israel then each shall give a ransom for his life to the lord when you number them that there be no plague among them when you number them now this does seem really sudden but it's also surprising right what it says here is if you're going to take a census if you're going to count all the people of israel everybody needs to pay an atonement so that a plague doesn't break out now this is exactly what happens in the lifetime of david David goes, I'd like to know how big Israel is. Let's take a census. And even Joab, who is no priest, goes, that's not a good idea. And David goes through it anyways, and a plague breaks out. It's, it's a pretty intense scenario. To understand why this is the case, we have to ask, what is the purpose of a census? Okay? And there's, there's two camps on this. Either, either the purpose of a census is because as king, you want to feel proud that this is your great, big, glorious nation. And so it's counting the people as your own. And that makes it a really serious faux pas because God is the king of Israel. Or, and I find this one to be more compelling, you take a census to build an army. Right? We're going to find out that the census only involves people of a particular age bracket. And David might be going, I wonder how big the army potentially is. Maybe at that point in David's kingdom, he's going... Maybe I can conquer, I can be, this is uh, not historical, but I can be the next Alexander the Great. He'd be the first Alexander the Great, but you get what I mean. Maybe that's what's going on. That makes sense to me because it says here that the only way to do that is to make atonement. Okay, And so there's a sense where, where it may be recognizing that in war, their lives are already forfeit, right? that war is a serious thing. And if they're going to go into it, there has to be directly built into this process of atonement. I'm not sure which of those is accurate. But either way, the way they're to take a census is with everybody giving this half shekel to to the temple. And it says specifically that it will be a ransom for them. Okay? In other words, it spares their life. Verse 31, each one who's numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 garas, Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who's numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not get le- give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you should take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to a remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. And so the money is brought into the temple and it was, or the tabernacle, and it was probably used to create some of these pieces um, that we read about last week. Another piece of furniture here, the bronze basin. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You'll put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you'll put water in it and with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. Now, when they were cleansed at the, te- at the front gate, that was a whole body washing, okay? It was like a sponge bath. Here, it's just their hands and their feet. And I can't resist comparing this to what Jesus says to his disciples when he washes their feet on the day of the Last Supper. Remember, he girds himself in a towel, and he begins to wash feet, and he comes to Peter and goes, No way, Lord. You're not going to wash me. If anything, I should be the one serving you in this way. And Jesus says something profound. He says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. So Peter gets the message, and he goes, Well, then, by all means, wash my face and wash all of me, Lord. And Jesus, intriguingly enough, says, he who has bathed has no need to bathe again, but only to wash his hands and feet. Okay? And so there's this correlation that Jesus draws between this cleanliness that comes with knowing Jesus initially, that you have been made clean, and then this ongoing reality that we need cleansing. Okay? And so there's capital F forgiveness. You come to Jesus, you are forgiven. And then there's this regular need for confession and forgiveness. Okay? Here, we see something similar. They're clean, but they still have this ongoing practice of cleanliness that's built into the script. Okay? Okay? Verse 21, they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and his offspring throughout their generations. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. Okay, all of these are fragrant, except the oil. That's just the base. All of these are expensive, hard to come by, and the recipe is in a tremendously large size, okay? They're making this not by the vial, but by the barrel, okay? But what's it for? Verse 25, you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstands and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with its utensils, and the basin and its stands, you shall consecrate them that they may be most holy, okay? And so just like the priests are to be anointed, so is the tabernacle, and there's a specific recipe given. Verse 31, you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured out on the body of an ordinary person, and shall make no other like it in composition. Why? Simply because it's supposed to be unique, okay? Okay? There's a difference between how your brother-in-law smells and the tabernacle, and that's by design, okay? Nobody should show up thinking of anything but the Lord, and so the fragrance is copyrighted, okay? That's the idea here. Verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacta and oncha and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each there will be equal part, and make an incense blended by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. Okay, in the same way, incense can be something that you fragrance other things with, but the tabernacle has its own blend. Okay, it's it's to be distinct. Verse 36, you shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I shall meet it with you. It'll be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. Now, cut off either means estranged, as in, you know, separated from everybody, or more likely, it means killed, okay? And so we've seen over and over again, lest you die, and now it says, lest you be cut off. The The possibilities are these, okay? That cut off is something that God does, like we've been reading everywhere else, okay? And so it's a warning of something that God's going to do. That cut off is a form of capital punishment for not recognizing Um, you know, the sacredness of these types of things, or that cutoff can mean both of those things, and we have to pay attention to the context, that it sometimes has to do with being um, expelled from the people, and other times it has to do with death. I'll just lay them out there. You can keep track of how many times we encounter it in the book of Leviticus and come to your own decision. Um, So here we have the priesthood laid out. In quite a bit of places here, I could have drawn correlations between the priests, their garments, what they do with their lives, and Jesus' ministry. But I decided to do something different. Because the truth is, we haven't seen the last of the priests, or their sacrifices, or anything in, their, in the tabernacle. Leviticus is going to dig deeper, Okay. But tonight I'd like to do something unique just to close off this chapter. I'd like to turn to the book of Hebrews and I'd like to read a couple of chapters straight, okay? See, I believe that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself, okay? And part of that's just because the Bible is a tremendously big book. And so a lot of times if you go, I have no idea what that word is, You can just learn what the word means by its usage across scripture, because it's big enough to do so. This is a relatively large cultural artifact, okay? Um, But the second reason I believe the Bible is a great commentary on the Bible is because the majority of Bible authors are also Bible readers. And they write knowing what the rest of the scriptures say. They refer to it. They explain it. They bring it forward. They compare it. They use it for illustration in all sorts of different ways. Hundreds of times in the New Testament, it says, as it is written, okay? There's a direct correlation in those ways. I'll give you one more, and then we'll read from the book of Hebrews. In the book of Jonah, you may remember Jonah gets mad at God for delivering Nineveh instead of bringing judgment. And he says, I knew that you were merciful and slow to anger, compassionate and steadfast. Why did he know? Because it's recorded in the book of Exodus, But here's the most fascinating thing. He adds a phrase at the end. You can look into this yourself. It's only found in Joel's recording of that same paraphrase. And so not only is Jonah familiar with Deuteronomy and Exodus, he's also familiar with Joel. Now, I won't even tell you why that's so exciting, but it says that we can understand a lot more about what Jonah is so grumpy about, okay? Because Joel's prophecies point to something in particular. If Jonah's read it, everything's at stake. Okay. But the point is, Jonah read the Bible, okay? and he speaks from that place. The book of Hebrews is a book written, we actually don't know who the author is. I'll tell you my theory because I think it's pretty cool. Okay? Some people go, gosh, this is clearly Paul. But grammatically and in vocabulary, it is absolutely not. Okay? Theologically, totally dead on. But the words don't ma- add up. Here's Here's the theory that I find the most compelling, but that's all it is. It's a theory. What if, what if Paul wrote this letter in Hebrew and it was translated into Greek by someone like, for example, Apollos or Luke, okay? Then we would have a pretty good explanation of where the book of Hebrews comes from. But either way, the author of Hebrews is writing to people who were Jewish, became Christians, and are starting to wonder if they had it better in Judaism, Wondering if they should go back to the sacrifices. Wondering if, like the rest of the Jews, they need to just maintain their Israel, you know, stuff. Um, And so what he argues throughout the book is, why would you go back now that you have Jesus? One of the key words used throughout the book of Hebrews, you'll notice it if you read it, is the word better. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the old covenant. It comes up over and over again. In the section we're going to look at, he deals specifically with the priesthood, the tabernacle, and the sacrifices. And so if you want to turn there, this is in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 7. And I'm actually going to read all the way into chapter 10. Okay? What I'd like you to do as I read is... Watch for the things that we just learned about and how the author uses them. He's going to do more than that, but just watch for those things as we read along. And I'll try and express with my reading uh, the things that are important. Let's pick up in verse 26 of chapter 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later in the law, appointed a son who has been made perfect forever. Chapter 8, now the point in which we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are no priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the old covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, I will be their God, and they shall Shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the altar of the covenant. Covered all sides with gold, "'in which was a golden urn holding the manna "'and Aaron's staff that budded "'and the tablets of the covenant. "'Above it were the cherubim of glory "'overshadowing the mercy seat. "'Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. "'Darn it! "'These preparations having thus been made, "'the priests go regularly into the first section "'performing their ritual duties. "'But in the second section only the high priest goes, "'and he but once a year, "'and not without taking blood, "'which he offers for himself.' who through the eternal spirit offered himself, without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who's made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf." Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for for man to die once and after comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Just a little further into chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect. Those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it's written in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, in burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'd encourage you this week to go back and read through that again and think through it. There's so much there. You probably in the formatting of your Bible saw a handful of Old Testament quotes. As I was reading, I was counting and I got up well over a dozen that aren't formatted that way because they're shorter it's an incredible connecting the dots of all of the Old Testament to Jesus Christ. But as you see here, all of these things were laid out according to the pattern. Why? Because for the uh, type, there truly was an archetype. For the prototype, there was a finished product. Okay, and so all of these things were designed not only so Israel could dwell with God, but also so we could understand the tremendous grace, beauty, love, and truth that we find in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for ourselves. Let's pray and we'll close for the night. Father, we thank you for this repeated refrain of the author of Hebrews that once for all you offered this sacrifice. That as you cried out on the cross, it is finished. We hear that as being fully and completely and totally true of our own sin that your sacrifice was sufficient, that we truly are clean, that though our sins were as scarlet, they have become white as snow. I pray, Lord, that we would live in that assurance of a new and better covenant where our sins are no longer remembered and where you've done a fresh and new work in our heart, not giving us an external law, not giving us teachers that call for us to know the Lord, but intimately and personally coming to know us through the work of your son. We thank you for all these things and we pray that you continue to impress them into our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, have a good night.